We're continuing our series on 2 Peter this morning. Our text today, as you know, is from 2 Peter 2, the whole chapter. In it, Peter warns the church about false teachers. Peter's message for us is clear. We must stand firm in the gospel. We must stand firm in the good news about what God has done in Jesus Christ to rescue sinners and reconcile them to himself. Now those of us who have been in the church for any number of years have probably encountered false teaching at some point. Some false teachings are practical and make promises that God does not. For example, give money to my ministry and God will repay you twofold. Or another one would be, God promises you a life of abundance, of ease, and financial prosperity. Other false teachings are theological at the root. One of these would be, God is love, and therefore no one will be in hell. Now false teachings like this are especially dangerous because there's an element of truth in them. God is indeed love. But it doesn't follow from that, that no one will be in hell or that hell's not a real place. The false teaching to the church to which Peter writes seems to be something like this. Christ freed us from the power of sin and the requirements of the law. So we are free to do what we want. Moreover, Christ is not returning to judge any sin that we might commit. They were teaching that Sexual permissiveness, among other things, was an an acceptable Christian lifestyle. Peter sees this as a basic denial of the lordship of Christ that doesn't acknowledge that in being freed from sin, we actually become slaves of a different master. And as Peter describes himself in the opening of the epistle, we are slaves to Jesus Christ. And this master will return to judge our faithfulness. Now, there's a danger in reading a text about false teaching in a church like this. And the danger is this. You won't think you're in any danger. You'll be tempted to check out, thinking that false teaching isn't a great danger for us. We know each week Jason carefully works through the biblical text. And he teaches the whole counsel of God. But if we're honest, there are many other voices that we hear. There are many other influences on our thinking. Most of you probably wouldn't accept some cheap gospel of of health, wealth, and prosperity. But what happens in difficult situations in your life? What happens when things don't go exactly like you want them? What happens when you suffer? When we suffer, all of a sudden we start questioning God's plan. We say things like, why does God let this happen? Doesn't God love me? I do everything right. I follow God, and still this happens to me. Why does God let the bad stuff happen to me and not to others? Or why doesn't God give me everything that they have? They've got it so good. And it's in these moments that we are tempted to buy into the lie that God promises us ease, health, and prosperity. That's the danger for us. We begin to want the life of ease and prosperity now instead of putting our hope in Christ. We must stand firm in the gospel. 
Now, as you know, this is one of the most challenging texts in all the New Testament. And it's long and it's dense. But together we can work through this. And I think it will be very rewarding for us and relevant to us. Each time I'm going to try to keep pulling us back to see the big picture of the text and where Peter is going with the argument and apply that to our own lives. Our text breaks down into four pretty clear sections, which you can see behind me. In verses 1 through 3, Peter establishes the pattern of sin and God's judgment on that sin. Verses 4 through 10 is the pattern of human sin and God's judgment established. And then in the second half of verse 10, Peter turns very specifically to these particular false teachers. and He describes the character of the false teachers in 10 through 16. 17 through 22 is the effect of these false teachers. Section 1 of our text, the pattern of human sin and God's judgment established. And the pattern is this, God is holy. And humans sin against God's holiness, God judges that, and eventually punishes human sin. Verse 1, let's read together. But false prophets also arose among the people. The people here being a reference to Israel. Just as there will also be false teachers among you, among the church, who secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Peter begins by showing how ancient the pattern is. The the false prophets arose among Israel, and they're going to arise among the church. But in all of this, God is faithful. What do these false teachers teach? We get a glimpse of it in the introduction, I think. And Peter here argues that their theology of permissiveness has denied the power of the gospel even denying the master who bought them. Now let's unpack that phrase a little bit. Peter emphasizes this term master because he wants to make the point that they have denied Jesus by denying that he has legitimate claims to their lives, that he will come to judge how they live. And then Peter uses the term bought, and and this evokes language of redemption. Because the Christian is bought with the blood of Christ. The Christian owes obedience to Christ as master. And here's the logic of this. To say that a blood-bought Christian can continue to live an unholy life is to deny the sanctifying power of Christ's work on the cross. Thus, it denies Christ who redeemed them. Paul communicates a very similar thought in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, and then in 20. He starts with an imperative. He starts with a command. Flee sexual immorality. This is one of the ways that you live the Christian life. Flee sexual immorality. And then a couple verses later, he gives the motivation for this and the reasoning. You are not your own. You have a different master. For you were bought with a price. Again, there's that language of redemption. You're not your own because you were bought by a different master. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Peter and Paul give us insight here into what should motivate a Christian. Christian holiness, of course, is made possible by the cross, where we're redeemed and 
given the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But the cross also serves as motivation for our holy living. Obedient living has as its motivation the past work of Christ, where we see the love of God shed on the cross. And then it has as its motivation the future work of Christ and judgment, that we can be found faithful stewards of God. Moving on with verses 2 through 3. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. It's somewhat startling for me that Peter begins this saying, many will follow. Many will follow. But we shouldn't be surprised that you can fill a stadium with false teaching. It promises all the good with none of the difficulty. But we'll see later that these false teachers promise a false gospel. It promises life, but it brings only death. We don't have to dig very deep in in this text to see the relevance of Peter's message for us today because the false teachers are motivated by two primary things, sex and money. Peter puts this greed and sensuality. So this is another reminder not to check out. If you've ever been tempted by sex or money, you need to heed Peter's warning this morning. Now backing up, big picture flow of the text. The flow of the text is this. False teachers arise in the church denying the fundamental gospel message. God judges and punishes this false teaching. And now that Peter has demonstrated or described this pattern, he will demonstrate it through a series of examples. He's going to use the examples of this. Angels, Noah's generation, and Sodom and Gomorrah. And the text is arranged in an if, 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 then series. So, if God judges unrighteous angels, and if God judged Noah's unrighteous generation, and if God judged the unrighteousness of Sodom and Gomorrah, then most certainly he will judge these false teachers. Section 2 of our text, Pattern of Human Sin and God's Judgment Demonstrated. Verses 4 through 10, and first we'll look at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. The argument here is from the greater to the lesser. If angels who are greater in glory and might than humans are judged, then most certainly these false teachers will be judged also. It also establishes the ancientness of the pattern. Before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, before human humans were even created for that matter, God punished sin. God punished sin. Verse 5 in Noah's generation. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. It's not just the angels are punished. Humans are also punished for their sin. We know the basic story about Noah, that humanity's sin reached an ever-increasing point to the point where God said, no more, 
And he brought cataclysmic judgment upon them in the form of a flood. Note this little phrase here, though, that God preserved Noah. God preserved Noah. And we get a little glimpse of the complementary actions of God. On the one hand, he's judging and punishing unrighteousness. But on the other hand, he's preserving and saving those who trust in him. Verses 6 through 10. And if, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, so if, 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 then... The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Literally, they despise lordship. They despise Christ's lordship. Even after God demonstrated that he would judge human sin in Noah's generation, Humanity rebelled against him again. And Sodom and Gomorrah are cities in the ancient world that were notorious for their pervasive sinfulness. God tolerated their sin for a while, but ultimately he judged them by raining down fire from the sky. Now some of you read over this phrase in their righteous lot and didn't think a lot of it. But then some of you, righteous lot? How could you describe lot as righteous? Let's remind ourselves of the story of Lot in the Old Testament. Lot was nephew of Abraham, who separated from Abraham. And Lot settled in the city of Sodom. And again, Sodom, known for its pervasive sinfulness. Lot is, Lot's in the city gate one night when two angelic visitors come to the city square and reveal their intentions to spend the night there. Lot says, you can't spend the night in the city you will most certainly be abused by the men of the city. So Lot invites them to their, his own house. The men of the city still come, and they start pounding on Lot's door. Bring out those men who came to you so that we can have our way with them. Lot, in his sinfulness, offers them his two unwed daughters. This doesn't satisfy the men of the city, and they continue to pound on the door. The angelic visitors then strike the men of the city with blindness, and they say to Lot, you must flee the city. We're going to destroy the city. Lot flees with his two daughters, and the city's destroyed. But Lot's sin doesn't end with Sodom. A little while later, in his drunkenness, he fathers children by his daughters. So how can Lot be righteous? How can that person be righteous? Let's establish what it is not. It is not an inerrancy issue. It's not that Peter is reading the text in Genesis and saying, this is clearly wrong, that the author got it wrong. Peter's offering an indifferent interpretation. It's an interpretation issue, not an inerrancy issue. But still, how can Lot be righteous? I think the explanation is something like this. Lot, although committing grave sins, can't minimize that he was a sinner, 
Lot had a standing before God on account of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Recognize here, no one is saying Lot is perfect. No one is minimizing the sin of Lot. But it's not that God preserves and saves the perfect. He preserves people like me and you. In some ways, reading the description of righteous Lot is like reading about saints in church history. Lot is like other tragic figures that have a heart after God in some ways but fall into terrible sin. In the Old Testament, we have uh, the classic example of David, who was a man after God's own heart. But he committed adultery, and to cover up that adultery, he committed murder. And then in the New Testament, the person who wrote this epistle, the person upon whom Christ built the church, the Apostle Peter, publicly denied Christ three times. And then even closer to our our own church setting in America, you have a figure like Jonathan Edwards, probably the most brilliant theological mind that America has produced. And he was instrumental in the New England revivals that saw hundreds and thousands of people come to faith. But he was a slave owner. And you just see that and you wonder, how could a man like that have such a gross and grave oversight? Think of our own lives are evidence, and these characters just mentioned are evidence. God is accomplishing his purposes through sinful human beings. God saves the imperfect who trust in him. Now these examples demonstrate two main things for Peter. And that's the message for us. These two things. They're on the one hand encouragement and on the other hand warning. The encouragement comes in this phrase. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. In the midst of all this gloom, In the midst of all this judgment, we have a promise that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. There's a promise of God's faithfulness. Noah was preserved and Lot was rescued. And it's not just that God knows how, it's that he does rescue those who trust in him. Paul puts it very similarly in 1 Corinthians 10.13. Jason quoted this passage uh, last week, actually. Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you except for what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. That's the myth. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. The promise is God's faithfulness. Recall those false gospels that promise no struggles. Paul and Peter's gospel is quite the opposite. You'll endure trials. You'll endure temptations. And there will be difficult things in life. But God is faithful. What is promised is God himself. Not some promise of an easy life. That's a false gospel. The promise for you this morning is not necessarily that the cancer will go away. That you won't miscarry a child that you'll get a better job, or maybe get a job at all, or that your family will accept you, or that your co-workers will be nice to you. The promise for you is not that life will be easy, that you'll experience no temptations and no struggles, or that 
obeying Christ will always be popular. The true promise for you is this, that God is faithful in all of these circumstances. The promise is not some cheap improvement of circumstances. It's far more than that. The promise and encouragement for you is the very character of God, that God is faithful. So as much as this is a promise and encouragement on the one hand, it's a warning on the other. And the warning comes in this phrase. The Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under judgment, under punishment until the day of judgment. Remember the pattern of judgment on those who sin against God. And the warning in 2 Peter, the warnings are real. That's why Peter emphasizes in one ten, which Jason covered, that we need to be all the more diligent to make our calling and election sure. Make sure that you've responded to the gospel message. And if you're here this morning and you haven't responded to the gift of God's grace or you don't even know what that would look like, I would encourage you to talk to someone after the service. Talk to one of the elders or uh, Pastor John or I'll be there also. We would love to tell you about God's love and provision for you in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you haven't accepted the gospel, Peter is warning you of the impending judgment. So backing up again, the big picture, the flow of the text. God judges sin. Sometimes he punishes it more swiftly than other times, but he always judges sin. Those not right with God will be punished, but those who trust in God for their salvation will be saved and preserved. So section three of our text, now that Peter has demonstrated this, this pattern of God judging the unrighteous, he turns specifically to these false teachers. And he will demonstrate the character of these false teachers, how evil they are through five comparative examples. And the five comparative examples are this. First, they are more bold than angels. They are more foolish than animals. They are more bold than ordinary sinners, even corrupting Christian worship. And five, they are like Balaam, son of Beor. So let's turn first to the second half of verse 10 and 11. Bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. The thought seems to be something like this. Angels have such a reverence for God and His Word that they let that be the final say in the matter. They don't attempt to add ridicule to God's judgment because they understand the sufficiency of His Word. In contrast, the false teachers have no regard for the Word of God, and they disregard God's Word by contradicting it in their teaching. Out of verse 12, they are more foolish than animals. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, Blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction. The terrible irony of this false gospel is this. The message of sexual license that promised freedom has actually enslaved them. 
and it's enslaved them to their lust. They are like instinctual and unreasoning animals who only follow their desires. Verse 13, they're more bold than sinners. Suffering wrong as the wages for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now, a constant biblical theme is that sinners prefer darkness rather than light because committing sins in daylight reveals your sins and you should be ashamed. But these, these false teachers have no shame. They commit their sins in broad daylight. No shame for their actions and no fear of God's judgment. The second half of verse 13, even during Christian worship, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Even Christian worship is perverted by their desires. During the communal meals, these teachers were scouting out other people that they could draw into their web of licentiousness. They'll even pervert Christian worship. Verses 14 through 16, they are like Balaam. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. <clears throat> they have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now we learn of the story of Balaam in Numbers 22 through 24. And let me remind you of, of the basic narrative there. God's people were coming out of Egypt. And God was consistently giving his people victory over those who would oppose him. Balak, the king of Moab, sees God's provision for his people. And he's terrified because they're coming into the land of Moab. So Balak, he does, what, he does what any king in the ancient world would do. He opens the yellow pages to prophets for hire. And Balaam, because his name begins with a B, we can reason, must have been first on the list. And he calls Balaam, and he says, Balaam, I realize that God is blessing his people, but I need you to curse him. I need you to oppose God's plan. Balaam eventually agrees to a price. There's a price for his, for his actions. And when he's on the way, when he's on the way to perform the service for Balak, God intervenes, and miraculously he allows an ordinarily speechless donkey to rebuke him. Nothing could be more, hu more humiliating, more humbling for someone that claims to speak for God than to be rebuked by a donkey. Balaam's actions were determined by his greed so that he sought to oppose God's judgment. Similarly, the false teachers deny the judgment of God in order to feed their own desires. Especially, Peter emphasizes, their greed and their lust. Even a donkey knows better than to oppose God's will and God's judgment. But not Balaam and not these false teachers. So, backing up again, the flow of the text. False teachers are motivated by their own desires, not godly desires. Again, some of you are tempted to check out 
and, and think that you would never be seduced by obviously terrible teaching and a terrible lifestyle like this. But sometimes it doesn't work in the direction that false teaching leads to an ungodly and sinful lifestyle. Sometimes it's the other direction, that the sinful lifestyle leads to false teaching and unbelief. If you are like me, you've had the unfortunate experience of seeing many people who grew up in the church and at one time professed some belief in Christ fall away. And the way that this has typically worked with the people that I know is this. They start to get lazy with with their faith, and then they engage in some small sin. A small sin that you probably, nobody would call them out on. Not that big of a deal, some might say. And then this pattern of sin, this, this sin when engaged in, becomes a pattern in their life. And it becomes more and more engrossing, and they love this sin so much so that it becomes the lifestyle that they love. And at some point, they're confronted with a God who would judge that sin and a Bible who would, that would denounce those actions. And they have a choice to make. What do you do? Do I forsake the sin that I love so much? Or do I change what I believe about God? Do I change what I believe about His Word? Do I change what I believe about His judgment? These people that I know did not begin with unbelief. Eventually, they denied the master who bought them. They arrived at denial and unbelief out of a desire to pursue their sin. And that is why we have to again heed Peter's words in 1.10 to be all the more diligent to make our calling and election sure. Now Peter will describe the terrible results of these false gospels and these false teachers. They result in the destruction for the listeners and the speakers. So part four, the result of their false teaching, verses 17 through 22. First, verses 17 through 19. These are waterless springs, mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. There are springs without water and mist driven by the wind. Now, we live a few miles from Lake Michigan, and it's hard for us sometimes to imagine a life without water. We turn on the faucet and the water comes out. But these, the original recipients here probably lived in a desert environment where the difference between life and death is a few inches of rain each year. These false teachers and their gospels are like springs without water. You can imagine traveling in the desert and seeing in the distance a spring, a spring that promised life-giving water, but when you get up to it, it's only dryness, only death. You can also imagine a mist driven by the wind. You see a cloud in the distance that promises the life-giving rain that you need, but as it approaches, that arid climate sucks all the moisture out of the cloud. And when it gets there, it's only a false hope. 
It's only a false promise. Both of these promise life, but provide only dryness and death. Similarly, these false teachers promise life, but their message brings dryness and death. Peter reiterates that judgment awaits them. They become slaves to the desires that have mastered them. The false gospels promise things that aren't true. They offer a hope that is a false hope. They say you can be free to do what you want and Christ won't judge you. They promise this absolute freedom. But even in this life, even in this life, it's proved to be false. For while they promise freedom, even they, even they themselves are enslaved to their desires. It's a false gospel. Verses 20 through 22. For if they, this still the false teachers, they the false teachers, if, they, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. What does this mean? Were the false teachers saved? Did they lose their salvation? Or perhaps they were never saved. Let's look at two contexts to, uh, to unearth this message. The first context we'll look at is 2 Peter, then we'll look at the context of the Bible as a whole. Now, assuming that Peter doesn't contradict himself outright, we need to interpret verses 20 and 21 in light of what precedes them. Makes sense, especially verse 9. In verse 9, let me remind you, reads, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous, under punishment until the day of judgment. For Peter, there are two groups of people. There are those who, are, who trust in God and are rescued and saved. Then there are those who reject God's offer and are condemned and judged. There's no third group for Peter. There's no third group that God tried to rescue and was, was unable to persevere. There's no group that God saved and then lost. Because the Lord knows how to rescue the godly in trials. Now if we look at the Bible as a whole, the Bible consistently talks about people who are in the church, but they never truly repent of their sins and entrust themselves to God for salvation. Jesus describes this, this in the parable of the sower, where all the plants appear to be healthy. They all appear to have life initially, but some don't have root and they die. In Matthew 7, Jesus also talks about thorn bushes that might from the distance look like they're grapevines. But you can recognize that they're not grapevines by their fruit. In that same chapter, he describes false teachers as wolves in sheep's clothing. The wolves appear to be of the fold, but by devouring sheep by their actions, they're evidence not to be of the fold. Paul similarly describes false teachers who secretly crept into the church in Galatians 2. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, 
he describes people who fall away at the end because they were not truly saved. John, in 1 John, also says that there were people who went out from us. They went out from the church and they seemed to be of us, but they really weren't of us, and they're evidenced by their actions. Peter seems to be warning of the same things that Jesus and Paul and John were. So how do we explain this text? Let me offer this explanation. It seems that they, these false teachers, began to understand the message about Christ because they had a knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They began to evidence moral improvement in their actions as they escaped the defilements of the world. Being around Christians, they begin to mimic the behavior of other Christians. But without the empowering of the Holy Spirit, they can't maintain this action. They cannot ultimately leave the pleasures of the world in order to entrust themselves to God, and they are again entangled in them and overcome. In time, they demonstrate that they themselves are slaves of corruption and not sons of the Father and redeemed and regenerate living. Then Peter uses two Proverbs, one from the book of Proverbs and one a Proverbs of, of the day. And the dog, because it is still a dog, behaves like a dog. And the same goes for the sow. You can, you can take a pig out of its mud, and along, as long as its nature is still a pig, it will behave like a pig, and it will go back to the mud. The same is true of this, these false teachers. They return to the world, and their lifestyle of sin, the vomit and the mud. We have seen how God's pattern of judging sin offers us on the one hand encouragement and on the other hand warning. We have seen how God will rescue the righteous in temptation, and we have seen the necessity of making our calling and election sure before God. But we miss the message of Second Peter if we don't read it in light of the church. We could read 2 Peter and think, this is a warning not to be a false teacher. And then you reason, I don't have a teaching role in the church, so this, this passage doesn't apply to me. But 2 Peter wasn't written to the false teachers. They're not addressed here. 2 Peter was written to the church. Peter doesn't deal with all the functions of the church here, but he does describe at least two that are relevant for this. Securing sound doctrine, and secondly, pursuing holy living. It's in the context of the church where the gospel is preached and the community of believers evidence transformed life that we can secure sound doctrine and pursue holy living. It's here where we stand firm in the gospel. In the community of believers, we make our calling and election sure. So the question is, how do we guard against false teachings? How do we stand firm in the gospel? A theme of 2 Peter, as we read through it, will be this, that we need to pursue knowledge about God. We should study God's words diligently and pursue knowledge about Him. And how do we guard against the sinful lifestyle that this false teaching promotes? It's also related to the knowledge of God. When we see Him more clearly when we start to get a glimpse of who he is, when we start to comprehend the greatness of Christ's sacrifice on on our behalf, then we'll want to live for him. 
Then we'll want to pursue holy living. And then we'll submit to the master who bought us. Let us pray. Father, first, we want to thank you for saving the unrighteous, saving us. We thank you for your provision for us to be adopted into your family, redeemed sons of the Father. We pray specifically for EBF right now and its members that you would keep us free from false teachings, both theologically and in our daily lives. Help us to trust in your faithfulness and surrender daily to your lordship. Help us to put our hope and faith in you and devote ourselves to pursuing you. Keep our eyes fixed on you. Amen.